This is the Wild Honey Collective, a podcast for cultural worker bees. Our guest today is Professor of Sociology and Peacebuilding Ashok Xavier, visiting Fulbright Fellow at Eastern Mennonite University. Ashok has lived his life's amazing work with a long repertoire of human rights advocacy projects that span a wide array of geographies, fields, and human experiences. He is head of the Department of Sociology at Loyola College in Chennai, India. He has advised and consulted with projects related to human rights advocacy, refugees, displaced persons, HIV AIDS patients, and rural Dalit farmers in his native India with his partner, Florina. He has also written scripts and produced 11 documentary films, as well as explored the power of theater for healing trauma. He and Florina together are currently stewarding a regenerative farm in partnership with a Dalit village in the mountains of Western India to support self-sufficient communal and organic agriculture training through lived practice. This episode is sponsored by the Center for Art, Humor, and Soul, a nonprofit that supports and amplifies the voices of edgewalkers through art that catalyzes change, laughter that brings us together, and soul, awakening to the creative spark within. Hello, Ashok. Thank you for being with me today. Hi, Amelia. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure. I've found that one of the most interesting ways to learn about who someone is is by learning who their greatest influences are. What, who are some of the people who have most profoundly shaped you and how have they helped make you who you are? Well, that's a tough question, actually. <laughs> a number of people who have influenced me as an academician in the field of academics, in the field of refugees that I work, in the field of um, nature and um, farming that I work. So I have a number of areas that I work in, in each and every area there are so many people who have influenced me. It's hard to say or name just one or two, but in this case, I'm going to make an exception and name a few people for sure. Go ahead. That, that's going to be... <laughs> Ideas. See, sometimes what happens is, uh, I want to tell you, start with a story. The story of, uh, in Mahabharata, a famous epic in uh, India, there is a story of a man, a young boy, who is an untouchable, who wants to learn archery. And uh, so he goes to the teacher, and the teacher would not teach him because he's an untouchable. But this guy was supremely talented. So what he does is um, he kind of thinks of, of his teacher and uh, imagines that his teacher is instructing him and uh, starts practicing archery. And at the end, what happens is there's a dog that comes barking almost to bite this teacher when the teacher is going for a walk. So this guy takes out his arrows, puts it onto the bow, and shoots almost 10 arrows right into the mouth of the dog so accurate. And so the teacher is completely flabbergasted. And the teacher does not know what to do. And he's so surprised. Who is this guy who did this? So he goes around, the teacher goes around asking for this guy. And then this guy shows up. He says, you? I didn't teach you. He said, then, he, then before that, 
the conversation goes like this and the teacher asks him who's your teacher he says my lord you are my teacher i have never taught you he said no you do not teach me in fact you rejected me but with you in your mind i practiced those techniques and i got it away but that's the positive side of the story and the story has also has a very sad end at the end and what happens is the teacher is training one of the best archers in the world so the teacher does not want anybody else to be better than his best student so the teacher goes around and he says okay if i am your teacher you must give me an offering you must give me an offering the offering is so that means in the ancient indian tradition when you go to a teacher you must give a substantial offering to the teacher and the teacher this time said well i'm going to ask you something and you cannot refuse so the student said yes no problem i will definitely give it so he said you have to cut off your thumb and give it to me his tool his tool so what he does is to the teacher he cuts off his thumb and offers it to the teacher just because the teacher asked and um, so this story has many dimensions one is how you can be you can groom yourself even without a teacher the second part of it is when the teacher asks you just give you don't hold back but the teacher can also be a little bit selfish and jealous about this guy so that he wants the teacher is always serving one part of the community and if i digress a little bit when you ask me what the teachers so these teachers that i have are many teachers who may not know that they taught me but they are always there with me and we continue to move ahead number of teachers one was my a professor and teacher uh, Dr. Joseph Xavier he was one of my one of the greatest teachers I've had somebody who taught me counseling he was my phd guide and various other things a lot of good things to learn from him then another teacher and mentor is the person who I work with a lot he is uh, Mr. Chandra Hasan who himself was a refugee he's lived a life as a refugee for the last 40 years and leads this huge refugee organization which is by and for the refugees like that and there are many many people uh, to name a few these are two people who immediately come to my mind but there are also many others who have played a very very important role as teachers of course family dad and mom are, are really inspiring teachers they do take you along the way but yeah in terms of inspi- inspiration we do draw a lot of inspiration from the local and our social circles and then from other circles as well yeah Thank you for that answer. So, you and your wonderful partner, Florina, are both completing a year of teaching here at Eastern Mennonite University as Fulbright scholars. Can you talk about what you teach and how it plays into your larger work with people living in India? Yeah, now uh, Florina and I have uh, been to EMU a long time ago we were here in 2003 and we were here till the end of 2004 so about 2 years almost 2 years we spent over here as fulbright scholars and that time we studied the conflict transformation and we were greatly inspired by this place especially by the likes of jane dockerty um we have barry hart and uh, john paul lerrack Howard Zare, Lisa Shirk, 
then we have uh, Nancy Good and a whole lot of others. And this includes Janelle, uh, Myers Brenner, and various other people, and also the students. Now, after we went back, we went to the mission. And always we've always been oriented towards human rights. That's our work. And human rights and humanitarian work has been so compelling for us. And having worked with refugees even before we came here, we had the impetus to give more. We had a new bag of tricks, which we could go and give it to people. And we did that. So that has taken us to over now close to 73 countries around the world. And what we do is go ahead and look at emergencies, complex emergencies, and look at grassroots communities in complex emergencies and deal with trauma, help them deal with trauma, reduce violence and promote peace, advocate for human rights and justice. In addition to that, also train local communities. So back home, what we do is also a lot of trainings and working as volunteers with groups, with different kinds of groups. And we just recognize the need, find out if there's a real need for our support. And if there is a need for support, we do not look for money, we do not look for resources. And we just believe that uh, we are resources ourselves. Mm. Okay. And so it's time that we give ourselves a shot and make little bit of small, tiny differences in people's lives. And that's been kind of an ongoing vision and mission of our lives, of how we cater to these important emergencies and uh, bail people out of situations. So whether it is a custodial death happened uh, in a police station, or if it is to mobilize students and people against something harmful that's going on in society, conducting rallies, or using theatrical exercises to mobilize groups mm. or to enable them to work on issues. Or it could be situations of trauma, dealing with trauma, especially post-war or in conflict trauma during the conflict. We do play a role in trying to catalyze that kind of situation. Yeah. Our role is adding value. We don't parachute into a place and do things. We just want to add value to whatever is going on. That's kind of the philosophy of our life. And that's one of our other big inspirators, or inspirations, I should say, is a, a wonderful Jesuit priest who passed away a couple of years ago, uh, Father Manu. And he would always say that. You don't have to reinvent fire. <laughs> it's, it's already burning. Okay, mm. All you want to do is just to keep it burning. Don't let it smoke out. So keep it burning. So it's important to keep that human spirit burning, right? And that helps a lot in taking things forward, yeah. So it sounds like you've worked in a really broad set of contexts, whether it's the country and culture that you're in or the specific problem that you're trying to mm -hmm. help address. Are there a set of guiding principles that you bring into entering those situations that are also different and that are all have other people involved, what are the, some of the guiding principles that you bring? See, some of the basic principles are those that we have evolved for ourselves. <laughs> okay. And uh, also from a social work background and from a conflict transformation background, we also pick up things on the way. 
Now, any intervention that we work on uh, can be easily based on a do-no-harm principle. So that's something very fundamental. So you don't go there to harm people. You're going there to help people, and that help should not be harmful. Hmm. That's something that we are very conscious about it. And then uh, we would like to disrupt things, but creatively. You know, the disruptive effect is important. For example, if you're working in, a, in an issue that is highly charged with a caste atmosphere and severely discriminated, you have to disrupt that. But how do you do that non-violently? So non-violence is something that we hold very close to our heart. And then in every intervention, we want to have the people's participation. We don't want to unilaterally decide anything. And how do you make people part of a change maker cycle? Mm -hmm. Involving people in change making cycles is very crucial. It's crucial because unless the horse decides to drink, you can give it as much water as you want, the horse is not going to drink. Mm -hmm. So you want to give the people a thirst, a sense of thirst for that, mm. an earning for that. Once they start yearning for it, then the possibilities of them coming around are much more. So the principles, basic ground principles are, when you go to a place, consult the people. Don't just intervene. Don't go with a set of interventions. And never go with an exit plan. Because the exit plan can be any time. It can be today, tomorrow, two years, three years. So we started working with refugees, what, uh, 25, 26 years ago as students. We started off with counseling refugees, training them to counsel and all that. And then uh, now it's 27 years. We've stuck to the issue, stuck to the cause. We've been with refugees ever since. Mm. And though we look at it very differently now, those days, emergency times are very different. And working in a conflict situation also, it's important to pick up those clues. You never know where these clues are coming from. We would say, pick up the smoke signals, like how you have over here, the Native Americans have smoke signals. So we pick up those smoke signals and then try to intervene wherever possible. Another principle is, should not be adventurous and stupid in conflict situations, because it's very dangerous. It's only a second between life and death, a millisecond between life and death. So there's no scope for being adventurous with, uh, with life of ourselves and others as well. So then these are a set of principles that guide us. And also there are values. We work on a number of values of values which are very, very important that we commit to a lot. And those values take us a long way as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think are some of the points of intervention that you see in the refugee context that we see as a result of climate change and conflict intersecting now in a U.S. context? Well, what I see is there's no grand master plan. There are only micro plans. Micro plans leading to master plans. I'm saying this very consciously because we have built a system that fully knowing well that it's not sustainable. 
the kind of luxury we have in terms of water, the kind of luxury we have in terms of consumption of goods, the same luxury we have in, in terms of consumption of food, mm-hmm. you don't have to look very far to see what's happening with the water situation around the world. So it's the classic. The classic would be to, it's like, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. That's the classic jargon that is here. But at the micro level, every individual needs to look at climate change from a personal point of view. Now, from a personal point of view, it simply means, like, how much water do you use to wash your hands? How much water do you use to have a shower or wash vessels? And things that, starting from that, a number of things can move on. Now, with refugees and climate change, it's kind of a very... Uh, there, there are a number of inter- intersecting areas, intersections to it. Life itself is filled with intersectionalities. right? Similarly with refugees. People without resources, owing to conflict, are moving from one place to the other. For that, you have a common enemy. Okay, In that kind of conflict, you know who is against you. And if you solve that problem, you can move. But climate refugees are another group because it's not one country or one group of people who are responsible for some climate refugee who will be migrating from, let's say, a part of uh, Bengal and India to another part. It's not one person. All of us are collectively responsible. So the intersectionality is everywhere. There's no one intersecting point. There are multiple points of intersection. So the businesses should shrink should become smaller, micro level, but multiple levels and multiple layers. So these layers have to be peeled out one by one to get to the last. Mm-hmm. So we, when we look at this from a, uh, from a conflict perspective or a refugee perspective, the lens that we need to use is everybody is responsible for a refugee crisis. It's not that only one country. And similarly, everybody is responsible for a climate crisis. And uh, in a climate crisis, there are no winners. There are no winners at all. Everybody is a loser. There's one such crisis where it's not a war. Even in a war, there are winners and losers sometimes. But uh, in this, there are no winners at all. There are only losers. And the larger part of humanity is greatly involved in this. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to the connection with land and how land is a crucial element and factor in how people who are both in a position of being displaced and people who are seeking to do something constructive for collective resilience, what role do you see cultivating the fertility and fruitfulness of land as well as the skills associated with that craft playing in this conversation about climate change? It's a very important question, very important question. For me, land is classified into three. The first is unused land. Second is used land. And third is unusable land. Mm. Or uh, I can even say that's uh, overexploited land. And this is part and parcel of human identity. Land is part and parcel of human identity. The moment human beings started to settle down and 
learned how to manage the land, I would say that was the birth of civilization. Because they knew the greatest resource they had came from the land. Whether it is uh, clearing the shrubs and bushes and replanting stuff, or if it is just getting the whole thing organized into communities, or tilling the land, or working with the land, anything. So land and identity are very close. Now how we use the land is very important. In rich and developed countries like the United States, land is used more for commercial purposes. And the growth of cash crops is, is putting more and more wealth into rich farmers' hands which is not a bad thing or a good thing. I'm not here to judge that. But there are millions of people out there who do not have access to any land to cultivate anything. And there are millions and millions of people out there who have access of land, access to land, but cannot cultivate anything on that land because it's so dry and arid and there's no water. Mm. On one side, there are these oasis of hope of people doing the right thing the right way as compared to an ocean of people who are doing everything in a very exploitative way. So access to land is a major problem. Not all farmers who, want, who are farming around the world own their land. They don't. They are the sharecroppers and a majority of landowners or farmers are small or marginal farmers. And marginal farmers can also be landless laborers. Now the scale and size of their production is very minimal and the rate of income is also very minimal as compared to these large farmers. The global politics of offering subsidies to large farmers in highly developed countries at the same time opposing subsidies for farmers in poor countries or developing countries is the hypocrisy of the global system. A farmer in the United States, let's say a cotton farmer in the United States, makes more money by farming or even not farming at all by gaining those subsidies. Whereas farmers around the world are really struggling because they have nothing to eat. The introduction of the BT cotton has brought in a lot of prosperity to farmers in this part of the world. As opposed to farmers who consume the same in parts of India and various other countries have been pushed to the brink of self-annihilation. Mm -hmm. So that's about farming. On the other hand, we're also talking about land. Now, land itself is premium commodity where people take it for granted. And land's ownership, large-scale land ownership, does not benefit farmers, it only benefits corporates. And what corporates do is kind of mindlessly exploiting the land, the labor, and everybody around it. Mm -hmm. So that is evidently true that people need to move beyond that realm of a self-centered world 
to more a, a, a generic approach to things. So when you said land, the use of land, it's it's a very complicated issue. And uh, unless there are some self-regulatory mechanisms that are put in place, it's not going to be very helpful. So based on what you've described, can you give us an idea of how you advocate for the use of land for social development, for social health? And can you also describe the context of the, the social context and the economic context of farming where you have a farm in India? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Thank you for that. I want to take you back to a bit of Indian history where land belonged to large landholders. And anybody who had that land technically had to be a very rich person. So people who were working on the land were basically agricultural laborers at the end of the day, would not have anything. So either they would be slave labor, or down the line, for generations, they would just be working and working and working. There's no savings and they would die as laborers. So this was the situation. Now in the 50s, 60s and 70s, we had a big land donation movement. So there was this great Gandhian called Vinoba Bhave would go to these rich landowners and tell them, look, you have so much land, it would be great if you can donate a small portion of your land for the poor people. And uh, moved by this man's passion, a lot of rich landowners came forward and gave their land for free to this great man. And he would divide them and then move on. Even now we have his followers a very famous woman um, who's about 90 years now, Krishnamal Jagannathan, a woman who is very inspiring, who continues to do that. She goes around asking for land, builds houses for the rural Dalit people and has been extremely successful with so many things. So having observed their vision of life, having observed how they do things, and also visiting a lot of farms for our own exposure, people's farms. The key problem is landlessness. And a way to empower this is very important because, see, these people are not landless all along. They had lands. They did not know how to maintain these lands. So, they had to sell the lands to find some kind of livelihood. That's one type. With the independence coming into India in 1947, they abolished these large land ownerships and they even had a land sealing act. And there was only so much land you can use or you can own. Mm. On paper, yes, but practically it is different. Some people still use thousands, own thousands of acres of land. So having worked with landless people, having explored that for some time, having researched that, and also having a, a very strong foothold on the issues of refugees, 
I found that it is important for us to do something to witness or bear witness to what we say. And then my wife and I decided to invest all our lifetime earnings in a piece of land. Everything that we had earned in the last 25 years. My parents did help in identifying the land. So we had to borrow substantial sums of money. And we identified a land right close to a Dalit settlement. Mm. A highly severely discriminated settlement. We were looking for land which was adjoining a community. And these communities are very interesting because they know the, the skill of the trade, but they don't have land. They are farming coolies or laborers. They know when to sow, they know when to harvest, they know when to weed, they know when to give water, everything. They know all that. But they don't have their own land. So what did we do? We come into the picture and uh, we go around educating people just for, for a whole year. Just talking to them, feeling the pulse and identifying areas where we could have some mutual collaboration and convince them saying that we had no profit motive in mind. But one thing we should remember is Hundreds of years of disempowerment cannot be undone with one single initiative. There's no one magic bullet. So what we do is we appoint social workers who go around mobilizing people, informing them about our grand plan. Mm. So we had one very good social worker, Benisha, who's a, a fresh graduate from my college. We employed her. And she built good rapport and explained the philosophy, ideology of this land. And they were invited to farm. So in a sense, the, we developed about 13 principles for people to collaborate. They were nonviolent principles. For example, if you have to be part of this land, you have to sign a community contract. This contract would be like that you don't own land and you don't have any domestic violence, either with your significant partner or you don't engage in domestic violence with your children, things like that. And while working on our land, you cannot consume alcohol and no tobacco. And the most important part is we pay equal wages for men and women, mm. which is at times very difficult to implement. And then we have all other kinds of things that were evolved from the community. The community found it very interesting, engaging in the beginning. Everybody said, we want to come, we want to come, we want to come. But when they saw these conditions which they had evolved, after three months, people just backed out. They said, oh, no, no, it's not a good idea. We can't be without drinking. We can't be without smoking. And uh, we can't be without using abusive language. So like that, people kind of dropped out. And crops also failed. You know, water and things like that. For the first year, for the year and a half, we struggled every day to get electricity mm. because we had paid up. The electricity was not given to us. The electrical department, they would come, they would investigate, they would keep all kinds of excuses. 
So I had to call the electricity department every single day for a year and a half, every day. Mm. For close to 450 days, I called them every day to get electricity. You didn't have any electricity? We did not have any electricity. And you hadn't planned for that at all? We had planned. We had planned and uh, because all this was part of it. Because if there's no electricity, there's no water. You have to have a bore well. Right. To pump the water, you need electricity. And you have to put a building, you need some light. So for that, you need electricity. So we struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled. And finally, we got some electricity. Then the bore well, luckily, we have some good water. But before even the bore well, when we identified this land, we cleared up the land. And we bunded the land, what we would call as build trenches, so that any water that fell on the land would not escape. Mm -hmm. The water could stagnate because it's kind of a hilly side. Okay. And water would just flow down into the river. We didn't want that to happen. So we learned this from an experiment done in the northern part of India. I visited it. I also had an exposure with them and both... Florian and I worked a few days with them just to understand what this was. And then when we looked at this, it was perfect. We immediately implemented it. It took us a good three months just to clear the land. It was just shrubland and what you would call as wasteland. Mm -hmm. People had deemed it as complete waste. So when we came, we wanted to be scientific. At the same time, adopt traditional knowledge. Not waste the traditional knowledge. It must be a combination. So when we had this combination, there was so much of resistance. People did not understand what we were trying to do. People would come and pull up a fight. They would come to our area and they would start calling names and things like that. But we didn't bother much. We just went on and on and on. Because we also have an activity center attached to this farm in the local village, teaching children how to play games, how to stay engaged, uh, learning through fun activities and all that. So we had children working with us. And the community also came around and we started working. We had about six families sign up for the first round. Four were very successful. But again, uh, this was only part-time. Mm -hmm. The access to land is so difficult that when you get a piece of land, you want to do everything in it which was not possible for us because we were saying you have to do organic. And for them, in their minds, they're not used to organic agriculture. They're used to more uh, giving more chemical inputs. And we educated them and they said it's not possible to cultivate anything organically. We tried and the first harvest was quite successful, but then it was deterioration because we ourselves were learning. I'm not a traditional farmer. I'm learning everything. I'm reading everything up. I'm consulting with everything. Two days ago, I had a long consultation with a doctor, a veterinarian, to find out what kind of cows, goats, and sheep we can raise in the land. So we are learning in the process. At the same time, our community members also inform us what is possible, what is not possible. And so we move with that to the next level. So we are really interested to understand the situation, the culture, without disrupting that, we move to the next level. And we advocate for land use by saying that if you have fallow land, you have land that's not being used, you give it to somebody, let them use it, and then they will share the profits with you. Mm. Yeah. That way your land is not wasted. 
and also we are also moving towards a multi uh, crop system not a monoculture but a multicultural crop system that's what we're looking at because uh, we know that it's inspiring to uh, it's very difficult to do these things but at the same time it is important to inspire people to move away from their traditional practices so the cost of labor also is extremely expensive and it's impossible for a farmer to run his homestead just like that so what we do is we advocate for land we call it as like like what you have over here like a crop share mm-hmm. we have something like a crop share and we help them cultivate we give them the technology we bring people from outside train these local farmers and then help them to achieve that now this is still experimental now 5 years from now if you're doing an interview with me then i will tell you if it's a success or a failure now it's too premature so people have now kind of taking a back seat at the same time they are observing very closely because what we have decided is we will show you how things are done so we have converted our plots into demonstrative plots so now we already have uh, more than 400 banana trees growing bananas are doing really well about uh, 70 80 coconut trees that we have mango trees all these are growing and uh, we are giving it a lot of nutrition and nourishment and care and we move forward with that so that and the uh, the land uh, owning pattern itself has changed so much because most of it is going to real estate mm. which we are kind of holding on by the teeth to prevent that yeah so that people can uh, work on their culture they will understand their culture better and it leads to further uh, prosperity with the land yes yeah i've seen a lot of traditional knowledge lost mm-hmm. from the sale of agricultural land to be turned into more suburban or urban land and it's more difficult over generations to stay in place right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the situation that you're speaking to reminds me a lot of the dynamic that is present in our community here in Harrisonburg and our communities all over the United States um and all over the world you see the landless peasant farmer movement is speaking to the same need for land as self-determination land as sovereignty land as health and not just land as an abstract concept mm-hmm. but a whole system that empowers small scale community scale agriculture um ideally agriculture that doesn't depend on all the input of chemicals because that's going to create a whole uh, cascading effect of negative consequences um for short term gain but it reminds me of a lot of migrant people who live in this community of Harrisonburg which is a refugee resettlement community we we have a lot of refugees who have come here over the last 50 years from different areas of the world and a very common need that i've heard expressed are that there is no access to land and there is no access to loans because of having 
because of lacking citizenship status, a lot of people don't have access to employment, to financial support like loans, and even to the kinds of generational wealth that helps people make those big purchases. Plus, there's a lot of discrimination involved. And so the need to redistribute the land that is unused in so much of the world is really crucial. I'm wondering how the relationships that you're building here as part of an institution and as part of a network, how you hope to bring those to your own community, how you hope to bridge some of the disparity in resources to distribute more access to land. Yeah, uh, well, another objective of being here itself is that, you know, we need to build bridges across. And today with the internet and with so much technology around, traditional knowledge and modern science experiments need to complement each other. And in this, this whole cross-pollination between the farmers in India and the farmers in the United States is really important. I'm talking about more small-scale farmers, not the large thousand-acre owner farmers. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about small farmers. And these farmers, I, I feel, have a lot to learn from each other. The other thing is also, if farmers want to support farmers, maybe some farmers over here are more resourceful and they want to support one or two farmers back home, that's still possible. So we're looking at three areas of collaboration. First is knowledge and information sharing. How can we learn from each other? Okay. Second is sharing of resources. It can be material resources, financial resources, or it can be livestock resources, whatever. Mm -hmm. That's the second. And the third is, how do farmers as a community come together and save humanity as a whole? It can be farmers from India, farmers from here. Because end of the day, however expensive things that we can buy and whatever expensive cars we drive, you need food on your plate. And we've not grown to that level where everything can come out of a packet. Even things that are in a packet has to go from a farm somewhere in the world. So we feel that it's really important for us to match these needs. And then the interests will automatically, you know, fall in place. And I, for one, am very sure that even with a, a minimal collaboration, facilitated collaboration, which can end up with exposure visits of some farmers from here coming there and seeing, or some farmers from India coming here and witnessing things. There's so many possibilities are there. And in terms of agro-technology, the United States has a lot to offer. For example, in my farm experiences with the BMRC farm that I am volunteering with almost every week, I see you guys have tools for everything. The other day, Nate, was Nate, the farm manager, was telling me how they're using a seeder. 
as seed and seeding machine, which is so precise and driven by science and technology, and how you can use more seeds efficiently to sow using that machine. Mm-hmm. Now, small-scale farmers in India will never think about that. They always use hands. Like you have a tool for everything. Like weeding, there's a tool. Seeding, there's a tool. Digging, there's a tool. For cutting, there's a tool. Everything, there's a tool. Now, most often in our context, we have one tool for everything. Just one. Now, that takes us to a very different level of understanding. Tools are expensive, yes. But the tools need to be accessible and available. It's not. Mm-hmm. So people end up spending more time on very simple, easy things that could be done. Mm-hmm. That takes us to the next important point where how can we share this technology? It could be very simple. As a trimmer, for example, a hedge trimmer, will make a huge difference for a farmer in India. Yeah. If a farmer from here decides to donate a hedge trimmer, then we create the linkage. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not an expensive thing over here, but there it is expensive as compared to. So let's create the direct bridges from here. To. The other thing is also as farmers, there's this whole issue of fighting against these laws that are constantly coming up against farmers. So farmers, wherever they are from around the world, can advocate the cause of the farmers. Mm -hmm. And from an advocacy point of view, well, if a poor farmer says something, nobody listens. But if a rich farmer from here shouts, it can be heard loud and clear even in the Senate. Mm -hmm. So these are possibilities. Many possibilities are there. And uh, in terms of uh, livestock, Not that uh, people want livestock from America and I don't even advocate that. How do you keep your livestock? And the way you maintain it. I've been to several farms over here and the way I see it is livestock is not a whole family business, family's job. It's actually one or two people who maintain huge livestocks. Mm -hmm. In our case, it's very different. So this is what we're thinking. I'm also learning a lot. And I'm sure many people who came before me have learned a lot across. But these linkages are important. Creating these links are really important. And how we proceed from there is completely left up to us how to take it forward. And if you want to make a substantive difference, I think it's it should be at the grassroots level, motivated there, and implemented at the policy level. Yeah. So that, that bridge is really important. Yeah. And that's exactly what the farmers' movement in India this past year has done. Right? I mean, they won their campaign. They won the law that they were trying to change. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that a little bit for anyone who may not have followed the, the story? Oh, yeah, definitely. The farmers' movement in India comes as a new lease of life, a breath of fresh air into this dull and uh, globalized economy and lawmaking. <laughs> A couple of years ago, the government of India came up with three farm laws. And they were targeting farmers from a very corporatized perspective. 
And the farm laws essentially were abolishing some traditional practices, introducing new, new practices, promoting large farms, and also changing the purchase and selling mechanisms, and so on and so forth. At the outset, it may look very rosy and very beautiful. For a non-farmer, it is very nice to see this. But for a farmer who's been going through this for a long period of time, this may be detrimental to their life and livelihoods. So ordinary farmers from Punjab and Haryana, they sat on the road non-violently. Despite COVID, despite bone-chilling cold, they braved the situation and they sat there out and uh, lobbied so strongly against it and they got the laws reversed. Not that reversing of the law it has done anything good, but at least it's prevented some damage. Not that the, everything in the law is bad and you have to keep protesting, it's not like that. But there was no consultation with the farmers before they came up with this law. And once it affects one group of farmers, it's bound to affect all the groups of farmers. What the protests have proven is that even at this day and time, protests work. People coming together and asserting their rights with, with an attitude of, you know, fighting governments, which are really powerful, is important. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's this famous saying, no, in the policy making, nothing about us without us. So similarly, we want people to be consulted and then come to a concerted decision. But here, those things seem to have been missed out. And it's really, really, really important. I cannot tell you how important this is when we try and advocate for a, for a robust farmers movement or uh, inclusive laws, it's important not only to think of the landholding farmers, but also to think of the landless laborers and farmers. They're also farmers. So the word farmer indicates somebody who holds, owns land. It does not indicate somebody who is who doesn't own land and who's working on the land. Mm -hmm. so that equity in term itself is important. And that's where our advocacy should move towards. So land must be accessible either as a lease or for available for being sold at an affordable price. And there needs to be a way in which we train farmers and uh, bring them back into the cycle. Now they're almost outside the cycle. Bring them inside. So much of technology, if it is not used for farming, I think it's a shame. Mm -hmm. And therefore, anything that we do needs to be integrated with society. And that way, we have a long way to go. Final question <laughs> to speak to everything that you've touched on. In a global context, what do you hope to see emerging out of protest movements and mm, social movements that can speak to the condition of solidarity with 
global land sovereignty. What we are talking about is, uh, it's not utopian. Okay. Lord Karl Marx would have called this as primitive communism, let's say. Then people shared everything they had. We have moved to a situation where sharing is very scary. And people are concerned about it. People don't understand the value of life itself. So, if you had to link everything together in a strong chain of reactions, I would say that it's important to protest. Not only because it feels good, because change is possible. Almost all the changes in the world did not happen automatically. People had to struggle for it. And in the United States, you know very well the civil rights movement, the suffrage movement, and various other movements over here have played an important role in advocating for policy change. Now the key is, why are they making those policies to be changed? Even when they make it, why can't we sit there at the table instead of going on protesting? So we need to find these intersectionalities where we can meet people, see eye to eye, talk to them and say, look, the perspective of the farmer is very different than the perspective of the bureaucrats. So protests are useful in highlighting issues and bringing it to the table. But at the table, the discussion is at another level. And so it's important for us to understand these dynamics before we even get into uh, dialogues on reform and other things. Okay. So it's important for us to understand the structure of how this works and make sure the voice of the farmers, voice of the landless laborers is heard right on top at the policy level. Thank you so much, Ashok. It was really, really a pleasure to have this conversation. You're welcome, and thank you so much for having me and providing the space to express our ideas and thoughts. This was definitely a pleasure talking to you, Amelia. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We have just two episodes left in season one of the podcast before we take a springtime break to prepare for another full-bodied season. During the break, digest and reflect back on what we've heard this season. Support the podcast by rating and reviewing wherever you're listening. It really does help pollinate the ideas about self-health and wealth that we want to see come to fruition out there in the world. Until next week, queens and beans, for all you wild honeys out there, keep creating.